Okay, so good evening. It's good, it's good to be back. It's been only a few weeks, but it feels like quite an eternity, at least for some of us, as every day feels longer than it had for some time. First of all, I want to say this, this shiur is dedicated in the memory of Ita Bat Natan Lev, of blessed memory. We have been praying for her for a while through this series, actually, and unfortunately she... She passed away very sadly, and we, we wish her memory all the blessing, and, 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 and thank you for dedicating the shiur in her memory. Thank you also for all of your good wishes for Eliyahu, that's our, that's our son's name, and Hashem, he's doing very well, as is my wife, and so thank God, things are, things are good. So since we, since we last got together a few weeks ago, we've been going through the Treasar, the so-called 12 minor prophets. We did the 8th century, then we did the 7th century, now we're up to the 6th century, okay, that's the way that we like to do things around here. So tonight the stars of the show are two people named Haggai and Zechariah. They're the two players at the very beginning of the Second Temple period. So just to swing us into this zone, 586 BCE is the big year that looms over the people of Israel from here on forever. We've, we've been changed forever since 586. 586 is the year that the Babylonians came and destroyed, they finally broke into Jerusalem and destroyed the first temple. And this catastrophic event wasn't just a bad thing. All right, This was basically the bad thing of the Bible. It's the bad thing of the Tanakh. And the people of Israel genuinely believed that this was the end of the God-Israel relationship. It wasn't just, oh no, terrible things have happened, let's go on with our lives with just no temple. They really thought this was it. And if you think that it's it, it's, first of all, really depressing. But it also means that people are quickly going to assimilate into Babylonian culture and vanish. It was up to the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who we've spoken about, who really saved the day. They were able to give a prophetic vision that looked beyond this destruction and said there will be a restoration. But at the time, and I really, as much as I love them now, I think if I were there, I would have thought that they were crazy. It didn't seem possible that after the destruction and after the exile and the fact that most of the Jewish people are now scattered around in Babylonia, in Egypt, wherever else, that they're going to somehow come back one day and build the temple. How in the world is that supposed to occur? The Babylonians aren't going anywhere. They're not going to allow us to rebuild. How could it ever happen? Jeremiah said that the Babylonian Empire would only last for 70 years, but he probably was the only forecaster on the planet who thought that. Everybody else was sure that the Babylonians would last forever. After all, as we've discussed, they defeated the Assyrians, and the Assyrians thought that they were going to last forever, and so did all of us. Now they're gone. Okay, so they're they're conquerors, the Babylonians. Okay, they're for sure going to be here forever. And yet Jeremiah comes along and says, in 70 years, it's all going to fall. Amazing. Really, really amazing, and in fact, incredible in 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 the literal sense. And then all of a sudden, miracles of history just happened. It was really crazy. In 550 BCE, 36 or so years after the destruction of the temple, a king named Cyrus of Persia decided to revolt against the Babylonians. And amazingly, he won. And not only did he win, he said, okay, if I could beat them on my turf, I'll bet you I could beat them on their turf. And he comes roaring out with the Persian armies, and they start just clobbering the Babylonian holdings everywhere and in unbelievably rapid fire. Between 550 and 540, the entire Babylonian Empire just collapsed like that. In 539, Cyrus the Great, that's how you get the title, the Great in history. If you kill enough people, you become great too. That's what what our history books all tell us. So Cyrus the Great now 
comes with his armies against the city of Babylonia, of course, the capital of the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian defenders open up the gates and welcome Cyrus. They don't even fight. They say, welcome to the new king of Babylonia. And that was it. That was the end of the Babylonian Empire like that. Suddenly it's the Persian Empire. Why? I would have done the same thing. You want to fight this guy? <laughs> they open up the gates and welcomed him as their new as their new emperor. They called him the Emperor of Babylonia. Of course, Cyrus disagreed and thought he was the Emperor of Persia, which really is correct. And suddenly you have a Persian Empire that dominates the globe. And then just a year or so later, Cyrus adopts a different kind of imperial policy toward religions of all these subjugated peoples. The Babylonians were into crushing everybody, and they crushed us very nicely, and they crushed other people too. The Persians came up with a different strategy, which was, let's let the locals worship their own gods, let's support whatever they believe in, and support their temples and all of that, and they'll be more loyal vassals that way. It was just a politically sound way to go. Instead of antagonizing them or forcing them out of their land, forcing them away from their religions, let's let them let them have what they want. And we even have a document from Cyrus that archaeologists dug up called the Cyrus Cylinder, because it is shaped like a cylinder, which basically describes some of these things. He wasn't a nice guy. I wouldn't want to be his friend. I'm sure you would not want to be his friend either. But he simply adopted a prudent policy toward his conquered people, saying let's try to keep them loyal for as long as we possibly can, because after all, who wants to have to keep crushing vassals? Let's just get their taxes, get wildly wealthy, and that's that's good. Miriam, you got a you got a source page as you as you entered? I can I can help. Oh you got it. that's that's what I needed to know. I just don't want you to have to start schlepping around. Good, good. Mission accomplished. Good. You found a good spot. I just want to make sure you're you're taken care of. Cyrus then allows what anybody in the world would have thought was impossible, and certainly any Jew. And that's source number one, the beginning of the book of Ezra. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, when the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah was fulfilled. In other words, the the prophetic author here editorializes and says, you're not going to believe this, folks, but Jeremiah, remember that 70-year prediction we all thought he was crazy? It happened. The Babylonian Empire has collapsed. And the Jews are suddenly allowed to go home. It's it's a miracle of history. Nothing short of that. And the prophetic author of the book of Ezra wastes no time throwing that in. When the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah was fulfilled, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his realm by word of mouth and in writing as follows. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me with building him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Amazingly, God inspired Cyrus to allow the Jews to return. If you're a student of the prophets, you know, what did Cyrus really say? If you had to paraphrase him, if you were to take a time machine back and and get hold of Cyrus's letter, or even just talk to Cyrus about it, what would he say? He would what? Go repopulate. repopulate. I'm sure he said that. Go back to Israel and rebuild your temple. But who would he quote? God. He would not quote God, because he didn't believe in one God. (laughs) That's that's what I'm driving at here. I'm sure he didn't say, the Lord God of heaven, etc. I'm sure he said, the gods that I believe in. But the prophetic editors never tolerate that sort of quotation, even as a direct quotation. There's one God, and 
that's the right one. So they paraphrase in order to get home the point that we're trying to make, which is, okay, the real God inspired all of these events. Yeah. You just said something I was going to ask about anyway. You talked about the editors. You Prophetic authors. Authors. Who, who is attributed as writing? Ezra and Nehemiah themselves. Ezra and Nehemiah certainly had a role in these books, but I don't know if they had the only role. Right, but they but they certainly were involved. Okay. So I always keep these things vague because since we don't know, so we don't know. But but prophetic authors, that's what I will call them. But Ezra and Nehemiah are certainly among them. It's incredible that Cyrus the Great allowed the Jews to return to, to Israel and to build the temple. In fact, he's even more tolerant than that. The verses that are right after this, which are not in your source sheets, are those Jews who want to go, you have my blessings, go right ahead. Those Jews who decide to remain in the diaspora, send checks. What? Send checks. Help, the, help with the building project. Send to the temple building fund. He was very good about making sure that all Jews should be involved. Yeah, Miriam? It seems like he was doing this across the across his empire. He was, you know, this wasn't a special favor to the Jews. Obviously, the Book of Ezra is not concerned with what's going over on in Egypt or Babylonia or the small little nations along the way. It's all about us. But apparently, he had this sort of imperial policy toward all of his subjugated peoples. So he wasn't being nice. He was being prudent. But I'm happy that he took this route, and so did the author of Ezra. So the Jews are thrilled. And so that's what goes on. Let me tell you in, in, in short order what Ezra chapters 1 through 6 do, and then we'll talk about the book of Ezra when we get to it in, in a bunch of months. What happens next is 42,360 Jews go. And there's a very long list, which actually enumerates town by town, family by family, and then adds it up. And the total is 42,360 people go. Of course, whenever Tanakh counts people, we don't know if that means people or if it means adult men, in which case the total would have been a much higher number, actually. It would have been closer to 200,000. Whatever it is, lots of people go, and when you read a long chapter like that, it feels like tons of people go. It's a vast chapter. And they start, they get there, and they start to build, and not only do they go, I mean, I'm so excited. I mean, you have six chapters of pure bliss, or almost pure bliss. That's, that's still pretty good, biblically speaking. What happens next is, they're led by two people who really should be their leaders. One is a man named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the great-grandson of King Yehoiachin. He's from the King David line. So he is an obvious king-like figure leading the people. We hear time and again how righteous he is. He's wonderful. So it's all the good stuff. Okay, here's redemption. It's miraculous. Jews are returning in floods to the land of Israel. They're going to rebuild the temple. They're being led by somebody from the Davidic line. And he is co-leading alongside a man named Yehoshua, or Joshua, or shortened form is Yeshua, same name, and, it's, and that's how he's usually called actually here. And Yehoshua is the high priest. And he is the grandson of the person who was the high priest who was killed by the Babylonians during the destruction. So we have exactly the right two people in charge, who are the descendants of the leaders at the time of the exile. Continuity is here. They're righteous. They're the right families. All the good stuff. And people are coming. I'm thrilled. And they get on to Israel, and right away, they start building the foundation for the temple. They get right off to work. They start raising funds. They start digging. They lay the foundation. They build an altar. They are so gleeful. There's one very telling passage, which we'll talk about more you know, in May or wherever, where you actually have a, a cacophony. The old-timers who remember what the first temple looked like, they start to cry and the young timers, 
are cheering and laughing out of sheer joy. And the description is, you know, the, the older people remember what the first temple looked like. And they know full well that King Solomon's lavish temple, which King Solomon was a very rich king, among other things, there's no way in the world that their building fund will cover a similar temple. There's just no way. And so they're depressed about that. They're happy that they're building a temple. That's good. But they're, they know that it will never be as good. And so they start to cry. The young timers don't know better and they don't have internet photos of what the first one looked like. So to them, this is, this is the messianic era. They're thrilled. Massive party. So the, the poetic description is, you know, you couldn't tell the laughing from the crying from afar. You, you get this mixture of emotions that are coming forth in chapter three. But all the same, everything is on the right track. But then, you know, we Jews sometimes have enemies. And alas, we had some enemies there. In this case, the locals. Chapter 4 in Ezra is about how local people got threatened by this. Uh Uh-oh, Jews are coming back, they're building a temple, pretty soon they'll be in charge. We have to do something about this. So they start to threaten the Jews. They start writing letters to the Persian officials trying to convince them not to allow the temple construction to go on. Somehow it will be bad for Persia. It won't, that's what Persia actually wants. But all the same, they had a lot of political clout and they did not want to lose it. So they started threatening the Jews and the Jews stopped building. Yeah, David. What happened to the Jews who never went on exile? Meaning those who were around? Yes. So some of them are still there and presumably rejoin the community. Some have already mixed in with these Israelite pagan mixtures, in which case they believe in the God of Israel, but they also have picked up some other deities along the way. So they're part of the locals? Not all locals are bad in this scene, but some of them are. In other words, the enemies are people who had been living in Israel, who themselves are probably this mixture that I'm describing. People who are descendants of Israelite stock, who have intermarried with pagans, and now believe in God and some pagan deities. And so when they, they actually approached Zerubbabel and said, can we please help you build? We believe in your God. Zerubbabel said, no thanks. And what he does say, and what we find out elsewhere in the book, is that anybody who abandoned the pagan deities, he welcomed with open arms. His problem was, you can't have people who believe in idolatry building a temple. Doesn't doesn't work. But they took umbrage at this, and so they began to harass the Jews, and it actually worked. They stopped the project. And it wasn't until chapter 5 in Ezra that two people show up, two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the stars of tonight, and they encouraged the rebuilding, and the people listened. And so they get right back down to business, they build. Of course, the enemies write letters to now the new king, who's Darius. Cyrus is no longer the king. They write, dear Darius, how could you allow the Jews to build the temple? But this time the Jews brought their lawyers. And they said, dear Darius, Cyrus is the one who permitted us to build. Check your archives. And so Darius did. He checked the royal archives, and sure enough, he found the document of Cyrus. They had a copy of it. So Darius writes back saying, this is legit. They're allowed to build and they have the Persian king's blessings. And not only that, but here, I'm writing you a check to help you build your temple. Yeah, Susan. What, um, were, was he in charge of Jerusalem and the Holy Land as well? I thought once they left, they were finished with him, the Jews, when they left um, Persia. Oh, Persia is a country, but it's also an empire. Including... Very much including us. We don't. We do not have any independence here. We are. We are what are called a tiny, tiny backwater vassal state. Oh, or a satrapy. Other, other, other terms are used also. But we're vassal states. We're not independent. And that actually, your question is exactly the right question because 
As you're reading this story, you feel, okay, this is the Messianic era. Kibbutz Galiot, it's the ingathering of the exile, rebuilding of the temple. There are prophets on board. Everybody's righteous. The leaders are righteous. But what about this man, Zerubbabel, right? He's a descendant of King David, and so the right thing for him to, his right job description should be king. But we're not allowed to have a king. We're in the Persian Empire. We can have a governor who's going to locally rule the people, but we, can, we certainly don't have any king. And that's actually one of the great paradoxes of our story, that here you have a kingly man leading the people from the right kingly family, but he's not allowed to be a king. And in fact, if anybody would dare put a crown on him, even on Purim, which hasn't existed yet, right? But if you put a crown on his head, that's an open rebellion, and the Persian Empire will have no choice but to come and invade and crush Israel like a bug. And they all know this. The Jews know this very, very, very well. Zerubbabel cannot be king, but he should be king, that's the whole point. We're supposed to have a Davidic king again. That's part of the, that's part of the script. Huh? How does he spend his day? With the Davidic king? Yes. Uh, it's good to be the king. I don't know. There's, there's lots of stuff to do when you are the king. And right now, his main job is to govern the people. But he's answerable to the king, which is Darius. So, so going back to Susan's question, I, I, that's really the point. There's a paradox here in this story. And that's what Chagai and Zechariah have to deal with. So, so the king come back from who? They came back. They lived in Babylonia. In fact, the name Zerubbabel means the seed of Babylonia. But even without the name, that's where he was born. He was one of the leaders of the returnees, along with Yehoshua, the, the person who becomes the high priest. Okay, so Chagai and Zechariah encouraged the people to build. They build. It takes them about four years. And they finish. The second temple is completed. And they celebrate Pesach like you wouldn't even imagine. They go crazy. They're so excited. And if the Tanakh ended after that chapter 6 with the Jews celebrating in their temple, with the Persian emperor himself supporting the project and the enemies will have to leave us alone, it's a good place to end things. You know, it's a happily ever after of sorts. Although you'd still have to wonder, where's the king? Like you'd still have to wonder, wait a minute, we're under a pagan emperor here and there's no way in the world we're ever going to revolt against them, or at least not successfully. There's no talk of revolution. Nobody is thinking about revolting against the Persians because they understand Persians are benign as long as you leave them alone and pay your taxes. You revolt or stop paying, it's, it's a, it's a, they're, they're just as brutal as anybody else. So, <coughs> excuse me. In the book of Ezra, which I was just recapping for you, Chagai and Zechariah just sound like cheerleaders. They're like, come on guys, build! And they built. Okay, that's great. It should always be so simple. It's already a good deal that somebody listened to prophets because we've been learning a lot of prophets together. doesn't always happen that way. But the good news is we also have the books of Haggai and Zechariah. And so we can actually hear a close-up of what was their message beyond, okay, everybody, let's build. And here you get to see some of the complexities that Susan started talking about and that we'll get to see inside. So here goes. The book of Haggai is just two chapters long. And it was all set over a couple of months, three and a half months long. You know, the prophecies are dated. And they're all in the year 520 BCE. The king Darius is already king by now. In other words, there was Cyrus. He is done. Then there was Cambyses, who's never mentioned in Tanakh, actually. He just doesn't do anything of Bible-worthy proportion. But he was there. And then came Darius. And Darius is the one in whose reign the temple is completed. Darius began around 522, and so now it's about 520 or so, give or take. And here we go. In the second year of King Darius, source 3, on the first day of the sixth month, 
This word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Yehotzadak, that's the high priest. Thus said the Lord of hosts, These people say, the time has not yet come for rebuilding the house of the Lord. Who are these people, by the way? The Jews, the, us, our community. These people don't think it's time for this redemption. And the word of the Lord through the prophet Haggai continued, Is it a time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house is lying in ruins? Hey, you're saying it's not time to build, but all of you guys have these great luxury homes. What's going on? And then Haggai continues after the dot, 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 verse 10. This, that is why the skies above you have withheld their moisture and the earth has withheld its yield. There's a drought going on, evidently. And, and Haggai, the prophet, says the reason why there is a drought is because you've stopped building the temple. You're busy building nice luxury homes for yourselves, but you're not building the temple. Now, based on what I just told you, let's see how good I told it over. What's the reason why the temple building stopped? In, Sefer, in the book of Ezra. Why did the Jews stop building? They came back, they laid the foundation, they began to build, but... So the locals challenged them. Enemies, that's right. Locals gave us a hard time. They threatened Persian influence, all this bad stuff. It's all about the enemies. Haggai ignores the enemies entirely and puts the entire burden of responsibility on the Jewish community. It says, hey guys, you're being lax. How come you stopped? You're busy building luxury homes. You don't have enough money for the temple. One of the things that he goes on about this drought and the dot, 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 is that people are saying, hey, we can't afford to the building fund. There's a drought. We don't have any surplus. So Haggai is like, give me a break. You're, you seem to make all these nice additions to your homes. You have plenty of money for that. You have none for the temple. Well, actually, that's why there's a drought. You're doing cause and effect backwards. The Jews are saying, we're not contributing because drought. And God is saying, actually, the reason why there's a drought is because you're not contributing. Mm-hmm. God flips it on, on his ear. So Haggai is blasting them. Which is really interesting. It's, it's important to note that he, he completely writes out the enemies as an excuse. He says, there is no excuse. Build it. Now, another excuse that the Jews kept on making is what the poor elders were crying about. Namely, we can't afford to build as nice a temple. And that really was true. And there also really is a drought, which means that they really don't have surplus. And then there's just the weird thing, which is Rubavel is not king. And there's no realistic way he's ever going to be a king. So the Jews, besides being lazy as far as Haggai is concerned, have three genuine concerns. One is they cannot afford a beautiful temple. They can't. And they're very sad about that. They feel it's almost better not to build it at all. Second thing is drought, meaning they really can't afford very much at all. And the third one is that they don't understand how to deal with with Zerubbabel's status. And that's something that Zechariah is going to pick up on a bit. So the good news is at least they listened to Haggai and got right back down to business. If you look at verse 12, Zerubbabel and son of Shaltiel and the high priest Joshua, son of Yehotzadak, and all the rest of the people gave heed to the summons of the Lord, their God, and to the words of the prophet Haggai. When the Lord, their God, sent him, the people feared the Lord. So it's good that they're righteous, they're listening, they listen to the prophets. Everything is good. And that's not so typical. Not everybody always listens to all the prophets. So here, everything is moving in the right direction. But now Haggai has to give some real answers. I'll tell you the first two answers that he gives, which are not in the source sheet, but you can read it all inside. 
He lets the people have it. You, you claim that you can't build a temple as nice as the first one. Stop complaining. What should you do? Do it anyway. Build anyway. Do the best you can. And then God will help along the process. God will make it nicer. Eventually it will be much nicer. You're right. You can't afford it now. I know. But don't worry. You get started. Do the best you can with the best materials you have. And then God will come in and help. I think you'll like this analogy. I might. Do Mill Street. Don't do 70th Street. Okay. But isn't that roughly? You start with something small. You can always do something later. Do the sacrifice now. You'll get to the point where you have what you want. Yeah, so that's that's what he says. Exactly right. So that's point A. Point A is he just says build it. And by the way, some commentators plausibly argue that when Darius wrote that big check to help, that that actually helped this along. It still didn't become as nice as King Solomon's temple. It wouldn't be as nice as King Solomon's temple until Herod the Great, who's another person who killed a lot of people, which is why he becomes the great. But in the meantime, Herod, the, the Jewish king, much later down the road, who was a very wicked man, but boy, oh boy, did he make the temple beautiful. That was his one merit. That's the, that's the first time that the second temple can legitimately legitimately claim to be as beautiful as King Solomon's. Not before that. Before that, it really was shabbier. There's no way that they could have afforded King Solomon's level of wealth. But all the same, Haggai says, your job is to build it. Everything else will take, will take place. Second problem is the drought. The Jews were complaining. How are we supposed to contribute anything if we're poor? If we're only yielding, if our fields are yielding 40 to 50 percent crops, we simply don't have enough surplus. So here, Haggai just says in a very colorful way in the book, don't worry, the drought will end and we'll get right down to business. Your job is to build. God will take care of the wealth. God will eliminate the drought. You'll be able to make it. The third one is the most interesting. What about Zerubbabel? So look at source number four. These are the very last four verses of the of the book. And the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overturn the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the might of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overturn chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders shall fall, each by the sword of his fellow. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, declares the Lord, and make you as a signet, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. All right, so in plain English, what's Haggai predicting over here? You will be king. You will be king, and who are all these people that are going to fall? Everybody else. And it says here, I will overturn the thrones of kingdoms. Thrones of which kingdoms? Yeah. This is an incredible prophecy that Haggai is saying in King Darius's reign in 520 BCE. He's saying the whole Persian Empire is going to collapse and Zerubbabel is going to become God's signet. In other words, essentially, he's going to be made king. And it sounds very messianic. A lot of commentators say, well, wait a minute here. That didn't happen at all. Zerubbabel never became king. And the Persian Empire certainly did not. I mean, eventually it would collapse with Alexander the Great in a couple hundred years. But it's not going to collapse tomorrow, which is the way that this prophecy sounds. Haggai is making it sound like this is an imminent thing to be fulfilled. The Persian Empire will just collapse, and Zerubbabel is going to become the king. And it sounds like the Messianic king. In this, Zerubbabel becomes the only named figure in all of Tanakh where a prophet predicts a Messianic redemption with the Redeemer by name. No other prophet ever did or will do this again. When prophets predict a messianic redeemer, they never will, they'll say it's from the Davidic line a lot of the time, but they're never going to name a person. 
They just say some descendant of King David will come one day. Okay, that's fine. We'll take it. Here Haggai seems to be saying that Zerubbabel is going to be the messianic king. He's naming not only somebody, he's naming a contemporary. Which is very exciting, except none of this happened at all. The Persian Empire did not have a dent during Zerubbabel's tenure. And Zerubbabel, of course, never became king. So our commentators fight this out for a thousand years, and it's not until Malbim shows up in the 19th century that he breaks this impasse by quoting source number five, a Talmudic passage. The sages say, the intention was to perform a miracle for Israel in the days of Ezra, referring to our period now, even as it was performed for them in the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. But sin caused the miracle to be withheld. I don't know what the sin is, but, but what is this, what's the import of this passage? That's what matters here. What this passage is saying is that Haggai isn't predicting what will happen. He's predicting what could happen. What he's saying is that the potential for a messianic redemption is right here now. He doesn't say what it will take to fulfill it other than build the temple. But Zerubbabel could go to his grave with a tombstone that says, here lies King Zerubbabel, the king of the new commonwealth. That would be really cool, right? He's saying that this is a real possibility right now. Certain conditions obviously need to be met, and certain conditions were not met because it was thwarted. But the Talmud is saying is that when a prophet predicts something, he's not necessarily predicting what will happen. He's predicting what should happen or what could happen as an impetus for people to behave better. This is critical for understanding what Haggai and Zechariah are doing. As far as Haggai is concerned, the key thing that people need to do is go ahead and build. He has no further message than that. It's a pretty flat, straightforward, you build, God will take care of the rest, and then you'll get wealth, you'll get the drought to be over, you'll even get the Messianic era. Sounds great. When you open up the book of Zechariah, it's a whole other ballgame. It's far more nuanced and far more complicated. The first time I ever taught the, a course at Yeshiva University called Chagai Zechariah Malachi, they go together. We'll do Malachi next week. I wanted to pace myself here and have a little more time to do Zechariah. Originally, I was going to do Malachi tonight. Forget it. As fast as I always talk, I can't even imagine how fast I'd have to talk to make this work. I figured, do Chagai Zechariah t- tonight. Malachi will be saved up for tomorrow night, uh, for next week. Zechariah, the first time I ever had to teach it, a senior colleague of mine came, he got wind of the fact that I was going to teach this course. So he gave me his advice, which he fully meant. He says, the way you teach a course in Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi is like this. You start with Chagai, and you go really slowly. And next you do Malachi, and you go even slower. And then you run out of time, and you don't have to do Zechariah. No. That was his plan. No, we've all uh, there's no, so I ignored him, and I'm very grateful to this day that I ignored him. By the way, this is actually really fun. I could have announced it two weeks ago, but I was busy having a baby, so it wasn't it wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna work from that point of view. But two days before that, the final proofs of my commentary on Chagai Zechariah Malachi that will come out with Magid Press was I signed off on them, and so hopefully soon the book will be in print and we'll be able to. So that'll be exciting. So I was able to. Glad I got the editing done when I had some functioning brain cells. That was, that was very clutch. But in the meantime, Zechariah is very complicated. The way that Rashi starts his commentary on the book of Zechariah is, whoa, this book is really hard. <laughs> now when Rashi says that, it's, uh, it's pretty daunting. Then even Ezra, his ultimate arch antagonist in, in the rabbinic commentary thing, he kicks off his commentary by saying, whoa, this book is really hard. 
He dreams, by the way, very presciently, even Ezra. He says, you know, I wish we had some ancient histories of Persia. Because then, if we had that stuff, then we'd be like a blind person leaning on a wall. In other words, it would still be a very hard book, but we'd have something to go on. Whereas now we don't even have that, so now we're just plain old blind people. Right? Now, just speaking of blind people, today on the subway, this is, this is why, here's how you survive in New York. So I got off the sixth train, and I got run over by a, a man with a walking stick who was running to make the train because he heard the train. It was like, it, it, was, it, was, it was really, it was, it was beautiful, actually. I was very happy he made the train. I got out of his way, but it was, it, it was pretty impressive. In the meantime, Zechariah, the reason why he's such a hard book and why Rashi and even Ezra fully agree, boy, oh boy, is this tough, is because he has these visions that are, it's great for artists. I mean, boy, oh boy, when I had to pick a book cover, I just went online and looked on art on Zechariah. Great stuff. I had so many choices. It was, it was really, really excellent. Uh, but they're really hard to understand. In fact, they're so hard to understand that not only do you and I not understand them, but neither did the prophet. <laughs> What happens in these visions is the prophet sees things. He has no idea what's going on. So an angel shows up in the vision to explain to him what's going on. And then that's, that helps us too. Once the angel tells the prophet, so we get to hear that piece too. And that's what actually gives us insight into the vision. So just to give you an example, here's the very first vision that he gets. In the night I had a vision. Source 6 were in. I saw a man mounted on a bay horse standing among the myrtles in the deep. And behind him were bays, sorrel, and white horses. I asked, what are those, my lord? And the angel who talked with me, this is the angel who's going to help him explain things. The angel who talked with me answered, I will let you know what they are. Then the man who was standing among the myrtles spoke up and said, these were sent out by the Lord to roam the earth. And in fact, they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtles. We have roamed the earth and have found all the earth dwelling in tranquility. Okay. Anybody want to take a stab at this one? It's really tough. Basically, what we get here is that there are horses, riders, God is involved, angels are involved, and then after that, it's kind of a mess. And what's up with the colors? And nobody, myrtle trees, I don't know what's going on either. So our commentators break their heads, doing the best that they can, trying to figure out something of the meaning of these visions. Two recent scholars, talk about a great shidduch here, Carol and Eric Myers, they teach slash taught at Duke University for many years. They wrote a commentary called the Anchor Bible back in the early 90s. So I read that, and they actually had one really interesting point just based on their knowledge of the Persian Empire. They're doing an Ibn Ezra. They're saying, we have the access to the Persian records now. We can actually talk about this a little bit. The Persians were famed for their surveillance. They had a whole system of horses and riders all over the country, all over the empire. And they knew what everybody was up to. They had big time, big brother. And they wanted to make sure things were running smoothly. If they were, great. Keep right on doing whatever you're doing. If there's any trouble, boy, oh boy, do we know. So they describe this vision in terms of that, that here you have these different colored horses roaming the earth. It resembles the Persians, that they are able to see exactly what is going on. But of course, this isn't Persia. Who's being described in the vision? This is God and the heavenly host. These are angels in play. So Carol and Eric Myers argue, I think very cogently, the Jewish people had a very big problem, as they should have had. We always say in our Kiddushah, Kadosh, 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 God is very holy. Adonai Tzvaot, what do we say? Melo kol The earth is filled with God's glory. But if you're living in the Persian Empire in 520 BCE, you might say, well, God might be holy and all, 
But the world is definitely filled with Persian glory. And lots of it. The Persian glory is everywhere you turn. They have horses. They have power. They have surveillance. They rule the world. Where's God in all of this? And we don't see God anywhere. Where's that? What's happening here? God's glory is eclipsed by this great Persian machine. So Myers and Myers argue, I think quite, quite cogently, that what Zechariah is seeing is not just a beautiful vision of the heavenly host. The heavenly host is being depicted as the Persian empire was being depicted. And what it's saying is, on the scenes, what you and I would see if we were living there, Persians rule the world. But behind the scenes, God knows exactly what is going on, and God is in control. This was a very important vision for the Jews to hear. Because there was a disconnect between these great visions of redemption and the fact that God's presence was nowhere and the Persian presence was everywhere. So I think that they're right. And I think that what, what, what's happening in this vision is God is reminding the Jewish people, don't worry, I'm here, I see all, and I'm going to take care of things. And that brings us to the part that you and I can figure out without, without, without much evidence. Verse 12, still in source 6. Thereupon the angel of the Lord exclaimed, O Lord of hosts, how long will you withhold pardon from Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, which you placed under a curse 70 years ago? In other words, we still feel unredeemed. After all, the Persians have power, they have a king, and we're a tiny vassal state, oppressed, poor. What's going on here? The Lord replied with kind, comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who talked with me said to me, Proclaim, thus said the Lord of hosts, I am very jealous for Jerusalem, for Zion, and I am very angry with those nations that are at ease. For I was only angry a little, but they overdid the punishment. Assuredly, thus said the Lord, I graciously return to Jerusalem. My house shall be built in her, declares the Lord of hosts. The measuring line is being applied to Jerusalem. Proclaim further. Thus said the Lord of hosts, my towns shall yet overflow with bounty. For the Lord will again comfort Zion. He will choose Jerusalem again. So this part we understand what the Jews were all thinking. What are they all thinking? We're nobodies. We're so oppressed. We're tiny. How come everybody else seems to be doing so well out there? And we're at the bottom of the heap. And God is saying, don't worry, that will change really fast. Build your temple. My power is right behind the scenes. Everything is going to get better. This was a great comfort to the people of Israel who felt, this is what's really going on in their minds, which you can see from these visions. Even though redemption has begun, Cyrus has permitted them to return. They're building a temple. They have a Davidic figure. They're starting to wonder, but is this really redemption? We're still poor. We're still vassal state. Our Zerubbabel is not a king. We're being oppressed by enemies. Is this really the redemption that the prophets have picked? And if not, maybe God still abandoned us. Maybe our fears from the destruction of the temple are warranted. Maybe God has left the people of Israel and there is no redemption. God is reminding them very, very beautifully with this, through a series of visions. I'm right behind the scenes waiting to come back out of the shadows. So first you have these horses. Here's another vision that Zechariah has in source seven. I looked up and saw a man holding a measuring line. Where are you going? I asked to measure Jerusalem. He replied to see how long and wide it is to be. So he comes, you know, with all these nice measuring tools. It's an angel, of course. But the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him. The former said to him, run to that young man, presumably Zechariah, and tell him, Jerusalem shall be peopled as a city without walls. So many shall be the men and cattle it contains. And I myself, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around it, and will be a glory inside of it. 
Let's stop there for a minute because that's the end of the vision. So what's the prediction over here? You have an angel measuring the dimensions of Jerusalem. And what's the prediction that's happening here? It's the grandeur that will be Jerusalem. Good, right? And, and protected by God. Protected by God, good. And Shelley? It's going to grow. The city is going to grow. All of these things. And it's going to be an unwalled city. Now, as a New Yorker, I always, I always smile at this particular point. In other words, the way a New Yorker defines a city, the answer is New York. There is no other, right? We all know that. And, and that's the way it always has been. Biblically speaking, and halakhically speaking, how do you define a city? Oh, it has a wall around it. It has a wall around it. A walled city is a city. And then you have the provinces and the farms and all these other things, the villages. A city has a wall. Now, Jerusalem's walls are in ruins because they were broken down in 586 by the Babylonians en route to their destroying the temple. And they've never rebuilt these walls. The walls are still in shambles. You go Everywhere you go, you have breaches in the walls. There are stones everywhere. It's a disaster. There still might be some parts of the wall standing. The Babylonians wouldn't have to shatter the wall 100% to get in there. I'm sure they broke it enough that their army can go in and do what it needed to do. But it's, it's, it's ruined, which means Jerusalem, our supreme city, is not even a real city. That is so humiliating. That's what everybody's thinking. It's so humiliating. How humiliating is it? I'll tell you how humiliating it is. It's not just a shame, you know, it's a stain and shame on the people of Israel. Halakha couldn't tolerate this shame. Halakha had a problem with it. And I'll tell you how. Purim story, right? So you, you know the point. The Jews everywhere around the empire had to fight one day on the 13th, and they celebrate Purim on the 14th day. That's what most of us do. But the Jews of Shushan, which was a walled city, of course, it was a real city, they had to fight for two days, according to the story, right? They had enemies, were still giving them a hard time on the 14th. So they were only able to celebrate on the 15th of Adar. So how do we codify that into law? Who celebrates on the 14th and who celebrates on the 15th? Walled cities, correct. In other words, non-walled cities, unwalled cities, celebrate on the 14th in solidarity with the empire. Not always. Okay, fine. And Shushan gets solidarity from all the walled cities. They're the ones who keep what we call Purim Shushan, or some people call Shushan Purim. Either way, that's what, that's what you do. That's very nice. So we all understand that concept, right? Walled city is 15th, and unwalled city is 14th. Good. Walled city is from what date? Because after all, there are plenty of cities in history that at some point have a wall and at some point don't have a wall. Jericho. Hmm? So, but the question is, if you're codifying the laws of Purim and you want cities to have, show solidarity with Shushan, from when would, if we were codifying Halakha, from what date if you had a walled city as of when, would... Hmm? The answer should be at the time of Purim. The answer is whoever had a walled city then, <laughs> whoever had a wall at that moment. Seems very plain. That's what I would have done. That's what you would have done. If you wanted, if walled cities are showing solidarity with Shushan, it means cities that were walled at the time of the Purim story. That's very clear. That's when it should be. Halakha wouldn't allow that very obvious point to go for. There was a minority opinion that said, yeah, that's what we should do. Rejected, and it has to be rejected. Because if we took the obvious historical ruling and said, oh, walled cities from the time of the Purim story 
are the cities that celebrate on the 15th, that means that Halakha is ruling that Jerusalem is not a city. Because at the time of the Purim story, the walls of Jerusalem are still in shambles. We couldn't do that. And that's why we had to say, no, 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 no. It's from the time of Joshua. It's Jericho, what David was saying. Jerusalem was perfectly walled city in the time of Joshua, many, many centuries before the Purim story. That makes no sense. What does Joshua's time have to do with the Purim story? Zero. But that was simply to protect the honor of Jerusalem. We couldn't rule in Halakha that Jerusalem is not a real city. That's just too shameful. So we didn't. The rabbi said we, ha- we have to bend the historical rules a little bit in favor of the honor of Jerusalem. Good call. So that's, a, that's what we actually do. So getting back to here, if you ask any Jew on the street in 520 BCE, what do you think about the walls of Jerusalem being in shambles? The answer is they're crying about that. It is so shameful. What's Zechariah's vision doing here? What does he say in this vision that he just saw? We don't need it. It's okay not to have it. It's a good thing not to have the walls. Because there's going to be such a population expansion that the walls would serve as a constraint. And here, for the very first time in our history, somebody's predicting a new city of Jerusalem. It's going to go beyond the original boundaries of the old city, the walled city. And it's a good thing that there are breaches because that's going to force this massive influx of population to extend beyond the boundaries of the walls. The walls will not serve as a constraint. And if you worry, says the prophecy... Oh no, the reason why you build the wall is for security. Don't worry, God will be like a wall of fire around all the Jews of Jerusalem. Nobody will harm Jerusalem at all. You don't need the wall. So here's Zechariah taking one of the most shameful and sad parts of the Jewish experience now in 520. Walls are in shambles. And he's turning it into a potentially incredibly good thing. It's really amazing. But of course, the only way that this prophecy will be fulfilled is if a lot of Jews actually move to Jerusalem. Right? In other words, this prophecy, like all prophecies, are potential. This could be what happens. But that only works if suddenly all Babylonian Jewry up and goes and moves back to Jerusalem. And suddenly, Jerusalem's population can expand into what we would think of as a new city. Which is why, right after this beautiful vision, in verse 10 now in source 7, Zechariah says... Away, away, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord. Though I swept you there like the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Away, escape, O Zion, you who dwell in fair Babylon. In other words, hey, I just got this great vision over here. Now he sends a letter to the Jews of Babylonia saying, I need this to be fulfilled. The only way it will be fulfilled is if all the Jews come back. You can't have a population explosion without the population. Right? They, they got to come. What ended up happening is most Jews ignored these calls and remained in the exile. They were comfortable there. 75 years after Zechariah's prophecy, Nehemiah, a later figure who we'll talk about in May, came from the Babylonian Persian exile, and he came to Jerusalem, and he's the one who finally fixed the walls in 445 BCE, one of the last biblical events. And one of the things he realized after completing the walls is that the Jerusalem population was so sparse He actually forced one-tenth of the Jewish population from the rest of Israel to move to Jerusalem to make it into a viable city. So you have Zechariah's prophetic potential just bursting in the air. Hey, we don't need these walls. We're going to get so many people to come to Jerusalem, we're going to want to expand into a new city. That was the ideal. The real was, no, that didn't happen at all. People didn't come. The population was so scanty that, that 
that Nehemiah had to tax the people, basically. One out of ten people had to move just to make it a viable city 75 years later. So the prophets, again, are describing a state of potential rather than a state of what necessarily will happen. You you should know, by the way, that in chapter 2, verse 9, before we move to the next prophecy that we'll talk about, where it says, I myself declares the Lord will be a wall of fire all around it, and I will be a glory inside it. We recite this verse in our Sidur one time per year. It's on Tisha B'Av, very good. At Minchav Tisha B'Av, there's a prayer called the Nachem prayer. And in the Nachem prayer, we pray for the restoration of Jerusalem, and we recite this verse. We pray that God will be able to rebuild Jerusalem and, and protect us, because it's understood that having a city alone is not the is not the end of it. So we quote this very verse in our Tisha B'Av liturgy. It's recited one time per year. In chapters 3 and uh, chapter 2, verse 9, it's in source 7, that I myself one declares the Lord, that God will be a wall of fire around it. Now, as we say, God, please do that. <laughs> please please restore Jerusalem and please protect us as, as though you are a wall of fire. Now, the visions in chapters 3 and 4 are actually the most famous, so to speak, of all of Zechariah's visions for the simple reason that we actually recite it as a haftarah twice during the year. We recite it once on Chanukah, and then we also recite it in Baha'alotecha, right, right toward the summer, June time, we recite this Haftarah also, because Zechariah sees, among other things, a menorah. So that makes sense for Chanukah right away, and we also do it for Baha'alotecha, because there's a command of Baha'alotecha that Aharon is going to light the menorah in the temple. So since you have menorahs in both places, so boom, it became the Haftarah for both of these things. And here we go, source eight. He further showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and the accuser standing at his right to accuse him. The accuser, the Hebrew word for the accuser is the Satan. So we don't have a Satan figure. That's the English English way to say it is Satan. We don't have some devil-like figure in our tradition at all. The Christians got into that. And already pre-Christianity, Satan became like this independent force in certain Jewish circles. Rabbinic Judaism didn't buy that at all. And biblical Judaism certainly doesn't know about it. The Satan is basically part of God's heavenly court. And he's the one who's the prosecuting lawyer in all trial-related things. He's the prosecuting part of the prosecution. So here, he's supposed to be the one who prosecutes Joshua standing as the high priest. But this time, God doesn't even let him speak. Verse 2, But the angel of the Lord said to the accuser, I don't know why they added the angel of the Lord, but okay. The text just says, the Lord said. Okay, but okay. To the accuser, the Lord rebuke you, O accuser. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. For this is a brand plucked from the fire. Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments when he stood before the angel. The latter spoke up and said to his attendants, Take the filthy garments off of him. And he said to him, See, I have removed your guilt from you, and you shall be clothed in priestly robes. It's a beautiful scene. Or the high priest Joshua in the vision. Again, this is not happening in a physical state. Joshua wasn't involved. This is Zechariah's vision. Is standing before the heavenly host. And the accusing angel is getting ready to say something nasty. But God cuts him off and says, forget it. There's no prosecution today. I'm, I'm defending, I'm defending Joshua. And you can even say, you can even figure out what the accuser would have said. If you look at verse 2 again. But the angel of the Lord said to the accuser, the Lord rebuke you, O accuser. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Okay, so what was the Satan about to say? <laughs> that you're not chosen. 
And, and by the way, the Satan in the vision is basically what every Jew on the street was saying. They felt that God has rejected the Jewish people permanently. That's the fear, that's the very deep fear running through the community throughout all of these visions. God is not with the people, the Persians run the show, the Jews are rejected, it's over. And so the Satan, who's this angelic force in the vision, just reflected what every single person on the street was saying. That God has rejected Jerusalem. Look, we're in shambles, we're in ruins, we're, we have no power whatsoever. This can't be the redemption, this can't be anything that great at all. And so God says, save it, Satan. I'm going to, I'm taking this one over. I have chosen Jerusalem and we're going to replace Joshua's filthy clothing with clean ones. Now, the high priest is actually two different things. If you, if you, by the way, what he's describing is basically what you would see on Yom Kippur. Where the high priest for just a moment would enter the Holy of Holies. In other words, that's symbolically where the heavenly host resides. And that's where the high priest attains atonement and purity. Notice you lose your filthy garments, and you now are pure again. When a high priest stands in the Holy of Holies, who is he? That's right. He's two things. He is himself. He's still a human being like any other one. And in fact, he has to atone for himself and his own sins first. First, he atones for himself and his family, like we all would. He's just a regular human being. But then, But then for everybody, because he's all of us. In other words, the symbol of what's happening at that moment is, when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, is the entire Jewish people is now standing right before God, in God's heavenly host. And then they are purified through that act. So what's, visible, what's, what's happening in this visionary experience is that. Joshua is standing before the heavenly host. Remember, there isn't a physical temple yet. right? They're in, en route to building it as we speak. He doesn't have that job yet. But in the heavenly host, in a visionary experience, he certainly does. He's standing before God in the heavenly host, and he is purified because God still chooses the people. He's still chosen Jerusalem. So what this is setting the stage for is what Joshua's role will be as the high priest once the temple is built. Namely, well, he'll be the high priest. In other words, Joshua's job is easy. His job description, once the temple is built, is exactly what his grandfather's job description was when the first temple was standing and what his great-grandfather's job was before him. Right? The high priest's role hasn't changed a drop once the temple is built. But then comes the next part of the vision, verse 8. Hearken well, O high priest Joshua, you and your fellow priests sitting before you. For those men are a sign that I am going to bring my servant the branch, or in Hebrew, the tzemach. Tzemach is a, is a branch or a shoot. Who exactly is the branch? Who should it be? It should be Zerubbabel. What? No, it really should be Zerubbabel. I had no but to that sentence. It should be Zerubbabel. Thing is, this is all part of what Haggai has done, right? Everybody's now talking about what is Zerubbabel to us. We all know what Joshua is. He's the high priest. Check. We all know that job description. It's an ancient one. He's going to keep right on doing it. Yes, isn't he? What Joshua is this? Isn't this years after the original Joshua? It's many years after. The, it's so it's a different different guy, different guy, very different Joshua. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different this is not Moses' disciple, no. not at all. This is a different person, same name. But when did he come in? Just now. This Joshua is alive now in 520. The original Joshua was 700 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very long time earlier. Right. Different, different tribe even, but different, but di- but different. 
Same name, different different person. Correct. This no, no, no. The original Joshua was not a priest at all. He was from the tribe of Ephraim. Moshe's disciple was not a priest. He wasn't. He was from the tribe of Ephraim. But anyway, even if he were a priest, it's a totally different person. Correct. Correct. No, no, no worries. No worries. What exactly is Rubavel's role? And the answer is, according to how our commentators understand this branch thing, Tzemach, he has the potential to be the Messianic Redeemer, exactly what Haggai said. Now, by the way, he wasn't, as we all know if you're keeping up with current events. Mashiach has not come yet. But what do we pray for every day? Et Semach David Tatzmiach. We pray for this Semach. In other words, we haven't lost sight of this vision. Daily we say this one. Tisha B'Av, we get once a year that, that verse that we saw before. So this one is, is three times daily on a regular. We, we pray for the Tzemach of David to come back and redeem us. It's coming from these, it's coming from these prophecies. So, now, let's be a Jew in 520 BCE, because that's, that's how we have to picture this as we, as we wind this all down. If you hear Zechariah saying that Zerubavel could be the potential messianic redeemer right now, what might you decide to do? Let's say you believe Zechariah, and you're like, wow, Zerubavel could be the messianic redeemer. I might start thinking, you know, we have to fulfill the potential. That's what I've been telling you all night long. We have to do something about it. What can we do? Maybe we should revolt against the Persians and crown him king. Maybe we need to help this process along. If you believe Zechariah that there's potential for messianic redemption and that he's going to be our king, and Haggai is saying that he's going to be God's signet, well, maybe the time has come to put a crown on his head and proclaim him to be the king, and let's have a revolt against the Persians, because they will come. And God will be a wall of fire and protect us. So Zechariah continues with his vision in verse in source 9. The angel who talked with me came back and woke me as a man who wakened from sleep. He said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a lampstand of all of gold with a bowl above it. The lamps on it are seven in number. The lamps above it have seven pipes. And by it there are two olive trees, one on the right of the bowl and one on its left. And those two olive trees are symbolic of Zerubbabel and Yehoshua, as the vision goes on to explain. The idea is that both of them fuel God's fire, that their service of God is what keeps God's presence going, which is a very nice thing. And what this vision is trying to say is what Zerubbabel and Yehoshua's role is to bring redemption. It's to be righteous people who lead the community in righteousness. Build the temple, be righteous people, get the rest of the Jews in the exile to come back. That's your job. What it isn't is what verse 6 says. Then he explained to me as follows. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, don't revolt. It's not going to be through your power and revolution that's going to bring the messianic redemption. It's by you fueling God's fire with your olive oil. That's what the vision is all about. In other words, with your righteous behavior. You're in Yehoshua, our spiritual leaders of the people. You have a mission to guide the people into righteousness. If you do that, God's presence will take care of the rest. But don't take active initiative to revolt against the Persians. Not with might and not with power, but with your spirit. With my spirit. Well, because uh, that has to do with Maccabees. I can't deal with Maccabees right now. We'll talk about that on the Hanukkah some other time. But the original meaning of the, of the vision very much seems to be a very direct explaining what Zerubbabel's role is and isn't. He potentially could be the Messianic king. The potential is all there. The way to fulfill that is through righteous behavior, 
through building the temple, through the Jews who are in the exile to come back to Jerusalem and to Israel. What it isn't is to give him political power before that happens. You have to let God give him the political power. If you do it on your own, that will be very, very bad. So thank God the Jews got that message loud and clear, and there's no trace whatsoever in any of the books of the period, not Chagai Zechariah Malachi, not Ezra Nehemiah, not Esther, that the Jews ever thought for a second of rebelling, which is good, because we would have been crushed like a bug. right? It would have been very, very bad. So... Thankfully, the prophets were able to steer the messianic aspirations of the people, to give them hope in Zerubbabel, to say this could be an era of messianic potential, but the way you fulfill it is through righteous behavior and through the ingathering of the exiles. They're taking religious initiative. Let God handle the politics. On that happy note, it is 8 o'clock, so I'd like to finish, start on time and finish on time. It is very good to be back, and, and thank you. Thank you so much for all of your good wishes throughout the period.